Welcome back to another Fed Square episode that is proudly brought to you via our virtual square. For today's episode, we wanted to go back through the archives once more to look at some of our most inspiring and popular talks held in our very own Deacon Edge, this time with Caroline Wilson. If you don't know who Caroline is, you're about to find out a whole lot more. She became a sports journalist back in a time when sports was a man's world. It was owned by men, played by men, and celebrated by men. Caroline enters a culture that was entrenched in the unwritten codes of what happens on the field stays on the field, if you can't take it, don't give it, and what happens on the trip away stays on the trip away. Let's meet this incredible trailblazer and hear her story. Sport in Australia, which captivates the hearts and minds of both sexes across all ages and within all socioeconomic groups, has a massive and very powerful role to play in changing attitudes to host of, a, of very important issues. In the 35 years since Caroline Wilson has been covering football, the game, as I suggested, has changed significantly. Once a male domain, Caroline has played a key part in bridging the gap and breaking down barriers, proving women can win, not just play, in a man's world. Caroline Wilson has been Chief Football Writer for The Age since 1999. She's also a panellist on 3AW, Channel 9's Footy Classified and ABC's Offsiders. She was the first woman to cover Australian rules football on a full-time basis and the first woman to, feel, to win the AFL's Gold Media Award. In 2010, Caroline had received the Australian Sports Commission's Lifetime Achievement Award. She has won multiple Australian Football Media and Quill Awards, two Walkley Awards, and in 2014 won the Graham Perkin Award for Australia's Journalist of the Year. I've known Caroline since she was a little girl. When the Richmonds, who were our next-door neighbours, and the, Wilson, and the Wilsons, uh, that's both Graham and Ian, I think were the powerhouse drivers of the Richmond Football Club. So here to deliver the 2016 oration, and I'm delighted that she's seen fit to say yes tonight, tackling the sport of women, would you please welcome Caroline Wilson. I think that was a slip of the tongue, David. You said, you said uh, tackling the sport of women. <laughs> tackling the sport of men. Before I start, I'd like to uh, acknowledge the traditional co-owners of this great game of Australian rules football, and that's women. We were there, according to Geoffrey Blaney, from the 1850s when those first games were played in the village of Melbourne. Quite seriously, I'm so honoured to be delivering the 2016 David Parkin oration, named in honour of a coach who was ahead of his time, who pioneered the teaching coach, who pioneered the coaching succession plan, and a coach who frequently and painfully at times admitted his own mistakes and frailties despite being one of the greatest. A coach who was probably the last one to actually hold down a job outside the industry, and a commentator now who is not the victim, like so many, of the last expert he spoke to, and who happened to be the premiership coach in my first year as a football journalist. David's passion for the game has been a godsend for reporters over five decades. David, you've been great copy. Your ability to mentor and instill self-belief into the less obvious contenders, 
current case in point um, is best demonstrated by the soon-to-be 300-gamer Hawthorne champion Sam Mitchell. If only more present-day coaches were prepared to speak so frankly to their fans through wee journos like David was. I won't say it's always been plain sailing between him and me. I've been at the wrong end of a couple of terrifying sprays. Remember John Elliott and the smoking, David? And there are times he walked the other day, he's walked the other way when he's seen me coming. But I will say that David never played the man or the woman, but always the subject at hand. When David suggested that Australian, football, Australian netball mentor, Joyce Brown, could actually walk into an AFL coaching gig, people laughed. But they're not laughing now. David did cooperate with me, initially unwillingly, on the story I would almost single out as the one that I'm the most proud of the story of his great friend and premiership star, Ken Hunter. I loved Ken Hunter in the 1980s. Rejected, I might add, by my club, Richmond, because they think, I'm told, he was deemed too skinny to hold down centre-half back, a position he excelled in for close to a decade at Carlton. But it wasn't those still memorable, high-flying grabs that piqued my interest in Ken years after his retirement. It was the lows. Ten years after Ken was dropped for the first time in his entire career as a 30-year-old and ultimately hospitalised with a crippling depression, I called him and asked if he would be prepared to talk to me about it. It's true that the toughest phone calls can ultimately end up the most rewarding. Over the next three months of occasional coffees and more phone calls that followed, and I know David initially worried for Ken and advised him against going public, he ultimately supported him and tried to help me understand what Ken had endured and why. That story was published in The Age in 1999. Now it is not such a big deal for a footballer to admit to such fragility, for an athlete to take time out due to depression or mental illness. That certainly wasn't the case when it happened to Ken or even a decade later when I wrote about it and I believe it was so brave of him to speak up. He led the way in destigmatising that stigma. Thank you, David, for all your help. David should be very happy with his remarkable legacy in football, and although he would have, been, have, every, although he would have every right to harbour the odd resentment, he seems to harbour none. My favourite early story, David, perhaps exaggerated, is was that it was you who walked up to the great John Kennedy and suggested, as the players were running around in the same direction, again, at Glenfrey Oval, that maybe the Hawks should bring in, bring in some new training drills. The coach, I'm told, reportedly told the Hawthorne players to turn around and run the other way. <laughs> when David and Deacon asked me to talk about tackling the sport of men, I immediately mentally resisted. I'm far more comfortable telling other people's stories and I don't think there is a sport or a subject or an institution ahead of AFL football in providing such a rich backdrop for those stories. An AFL commissioner over dinner one night a few years ago interrupted me mid-sentence when I was pontificating on some current bugbear or issue I had with the game and said, looking at me baffled, but don't you realise you have the best job in the world? Well, maybe not the best, but I must say it's up there. I first started writing about football, as David said, 20, uh, 35 years ago at the age of 21. My good friend Corrie Perkin, who'd spent a year pioneering the job at the age the year before, pushed me into it. I was a fairly average young reporter coming to the end of my cadetship with the old Melbourne Herald, where the sports writers were still shut away in a separate room, 
a room which always seemed to reverberate with laughter and a lot of shouting. My first sports editor, the very recently retired great Ron Reid, told me I was coming in as an experiment, a woman in the all-male sport department and that I would cover every sport but boxing. Three and a half decades later, my sports editor, Chloe Salto, is a woman. Two of the game's most respected women football and sports writers, Emma Quayle and Samantha Lane, work beside me. Linda Pierce has just got back from covering Wimbledon again, and another up-and-comer, Claire Syracuse, in The Age Today, had a decent crack at the ridiculous ticket prices being charged for the Juventus exhibition game. Back then, Ron would push me out of the office every weekend or midweek to literally find a story. Somewhere in the outskirts of the city or further afield, whether it be a softball game at Gells Park, a country race meeting, a hang gliding human interest story at Paul Punker, or a women's cricket game in Bendigo. As summer became that first autumn, I started looking to the VFL for human interest stories. If only media today could indulge young reporters the way I was indulged then. One thing hasn't changed. Football was a tough gig. Just as, but it was also very embracing. Just as this great game accommodates most shapes and sizes and colours than any other footy code, it largely embraced its first football, first full-time female football rider, albeit with the odd strange moment. Turning up to work one Monday early on after covering my first practice game, Collingwood v Carlton at Princes Park, the all-male subs desk treated me with a newfound respect. They couldn't believe a woman could write a reasonably accurate report of a match on deadline and therefore I became a prodigy. Some thought a genius. <laughs> I was in. From that game on, I was allowed to cover football on a weekly basis. Of course, at functions, I sat with the women, the wives of the players and officials. Lucky me. That is where anyone who knows the game will tell you is where the stories are. And as the daughter of the then Richmond president and having spent the best part of my teenage years watching and listening to women like Jan Richmond and Maureen Hafey and Cheryl Hart and Marg Jewell, I was already well aware of that. One day in the first pre-season, I sat pre-game, first season I should say, I sat pre-game with the wife of one of the game's great legends. She sat there and her analysis of her husband's club's current plight was as fascinating as it was flawless. Then at one point she looked at me and said, but I really don't think women should be writing about football. When I asked her why, given her obvious insights into the game, she said, oh, I don't talk about it at home. He doesn't let me. I was accused of giving votes only to the good-looking players, threatened with being exposed to unmentionable parts of a male anatomy of a wounded fullback by way of explaining a bruised and swollen black eye of another player which we had photographed and featured against the protocol of the day on the front page. I was marched out of changing rooms by two club presidents, including David's, one who apologised later, saying he thought I was a groupie, and banned from the change rooms completely by a third, my father. No kidding, I was taken to the kitchen when I arrived at my first football writer's dinner because they thought I was working as a waitress. And when I overstepped the mark, I was yelled at like everyone else by coaches and football bosses. There was no social media, no club website, no mobile phones and no media managers. And yet so many great stories. I loved every minute of it. Mike Sheehan was chief football writer 
and I was told by Ron Reed to simply watch him and learn. Very good call, Ron. And so many great stories. There have been some terrifying and terrible moments since then, but there have been so many great ones. Walking the final two days, watching Greg Norman shake the monkey off his back over a wild weekend at Turnbury. Catching the train from Paddington to Liverpool after that city's fans had rioted and caused the burning of Belgium's Heysel Stadium and trying as a 24-year-old to get inside the heads of those so-called hooligans. Sitting with the bewildered Becker parents after their 17-year-old son Boris had come from obscurity to serve his way to victory at Wimbledon and finally being taken into the fold by a group of world-weary, sometimes grumpy, and always inspiring Fleet Street sports journalists over two glorious summers I will still always remember as Brigadoon. Sitting with Ron Barassi and Simon Madden, ar arguing about Catholicism during a football tour of Ireland in 1984, when the hotel front desk called me over and the chief of staff from, was calling from Melbourne, telling me that Australia's most wanted man, Robert Trimboli, had been arrested across the road. And later on, trying to re retrace the final days and sum up the lives of men from Darren Mullane to Vin Knight to the great Alan Schwab, the disaster that was the uh, Sydney Swans in the late 1980s, examining the fascinating but flawed Melbourne Olympic Games bit, following Cathy Freeman's soap operatic but ultimately glorious journey to Olympic gold, and as the age chief footy rider, covering and occasionally breaking epic stories like the Carlton salary cap scandal, the Malcolm Blight sacking from St Kilda, the rise of Andrew Dimitriou, the expose of the Melbourne tanking affair, the Wayne Carey scandal, and the AFL's bold decision to expand to 18 teams. To this day, when harsh criticism or debate comes my way, I generally see it as part of the job. Why be a senior journo in today's environment unless you can take people where they can't normally go? To profess strong and occasionally harsh opinions that you're passionate about or dispel some of football's many myths. To write stories they don't want you to write, to, grow, to quote my first editor, John Fitzgerald. And, and so you have to expect, what, expect sometimes what comes back. Not so much now, and more of this in a moment, but the footy show, for all its good stuff, tended to hit back, back in the day, at some of those stronger columns and the wider issue of female involvement with some occasionally vile sexist attacks and some strange ones. I still remember a younger Luke Darcy asking on the show, do you think it's because she's a woman she feels she needs to have strong opinions? But generally, I think those attitudes are on the way out, although some are dragging their feet. I would like to mention one unsung hero of my early years of covering football, and that was the Victorian Premier John Kane, who in my second year in the job declared the MCC being on crowd land was illegally banning women from some parts of the ground and from being members. To think we were banned from some parts of the MCG as recently as the early 1980s. Ever since my mother, my sister and I were allowed to jump the queue that year, I've always been a big believer in, in affirmative action. Gillan McLaughlin, strong-armed, I suspect, into being a more recent male champion of change, now looks committed to being that champion. Finally, the AFL executive does not consist of primarily white male former private schoolboys. Finally, women are not leaving the game's head office in worryingly big numbers, disenchanted. I firmly believe that if, if the next AFL chairman is not a woman, 
then David's friend, Mike Fitzpatrick, will feel that he has let the side down. And the Commission has dragged its feet at times, clumsily but finally introducing its first woman board member, Sam Moston, as an add-on because no male would stand aside for her. In her own way, Sam was a disruptor before that word became a corporate noun. Had she and Linda Desso not been sitting on the AFL board when the Essendon penalties were being delivered, I suspect those penalties would have been further diluted. Sometimes it's an asset, not being a member of the boys' club. That experimental drug program, football's worst story, was not without its moments of personal and professional threats and pushback, but I remain in debt to those mothers and partners and other family members of all those boys and player representatives who feared for the worst and who anonymously broke the party line to expose to us at the age key elements of that terrible time. How on earth other football staff and coaches were paid hundreds of thousands of dollars or doctors who were regarded as the best in their field and trusted by those young men and their families still fa failed to stop what was happening at Essendon in 2012 still makes me angry. Sam Moston was also the first commissioner to push the game early in this millennium to recognise and empower and expand its then fragmented women's competitions, now the fastest growing brand of footy in the country. The birth of the National Women's League has many mothers and fathers now, and Gillen deserves credit for fast-tracking it, and notably, so does the Western Bulldogs director, Susan Alberti, who championed those first, first exhibition games and also stepped in and saved the Victorian Women's League as a sponsor before it was a sexy sport to sponsor. How anyone ever said women serve no purposes on AFL boards is beyond me. Someone asked me a few months ago what, I, what advice I would give to the new breed of national women footballers. And I might add, I never really saw them coming, but now see this competition as one of the game's great and best stories in years. But they pose some challenges also. Those clubs who have successfully bid to field those foundation teams so they are well equipped to handle the recruiting challenges, the issues of male and female dressing rooms, the fight for recognition and the diversity of relationships that will separate the women from the men. So my advice would be this. You have a blank piece of paper, AFL, and women. No historic or cultural impediment, so embrace it. Just like the AFL commercial team has gone back to scratch in designing the best possible uniform and sporting apparel for women, don't necessarily emulate the, emulate the men in the way you present yourselves. At some point in the game's history, it became, it became taboo for footballers to talk about their strengths, to give us insights into what makes them so good. So determined to, to subscribe publicly to Team First and Daylight Second, journalists and therefore supporters are too rarely given insights into what makes our players and therefore our game so great. If you're not self-deprecating or, or to be brutal bland, then too often you're a traitor to the team, to the cause, which is why as a reporter it's sometimes great to go and cover Olympic Games or golf championships and hear sportsmen actually talk about, and women, why they're so good. That's why I love the Australian Football Hall of Fame as an event. Finally, the great champions of the game are not self-conscious, talking about themselves. Don't get me wrong, I'm not asking for a women's team made up of Jason Akermanis. But I do, I would love to see a female version though. I do hope our great game and our women players, I should say, open a bit more, open up a bit more 
and embrace diversity. Now, back to tackling the sport of men. On the Monday night of the Queen's birthday this year, when I was first told by a young male producer at Channel 9 about a conversation on Triple M that day involving Eddie Maguire and James Brayshaw and Danny Frawley, my initial reaction was the same as it has been so many times in the past, when that, fashion, when that station or the footy show launched a gang attack. You feel a bit sick about it, you wonder whether you deserved it, and ultimately pretend you don't care and rise above it. Although it must be said, I thought those days had ended long ago. Since I joined Channel 9 back in 2007, my colleagues for most of those years, Gary Lyon and Craig Hutchison, always hated being accused of bullying and felt that I gave as good as I got, that they were being unfairly attacked simply because I was female and audiences simply couldn't handle a group of males and a female engaging in a robust debate. In many cases, most cases, they had a point. But sometimes the rules of engagement in this high-octane, obsessive, consuming and passionate world in which we work are broken. And I think those Triple M guys broke those boundaries on the day of the Ice Bucket Challenge. It seemed, it seemed over recent weeks that everyone with a voice across this country has had an opinion about what happened with the Triple M gang. So I just want to make a few points, mainly on the positives that came out of it. One, most of the older guys I worked with at Channel 9 didn't see it, an issue, didn't see it as an issue for Footy Classified that night. But the 20-somethings in program reporter Mitch Cleary and the assistant producer Ed Bowman didn't like it at all and pushed and thought we should have debated it. Two, the issue became a national story due to a group of women in their 30s and 40s who call themselves the Outer Sanctum. They are writers, poets, cooks, mothers, Hawthorne supporters, God knows what else they do. They seem to do everything. <laughs> who produce a podcast every week from a kitchen in Box Hill. The women, who I think Sam Newman was referring to as second-tier media. They are football silent, but great majority. Three, in 2008, when Sam staple-gunned my head, shot to a mannequin in underwear, the then AFL CEO, Andrew Dimitriou, called me the next morning to express his disgust and later slammed the stunt at a media conference. But not one footy journo reported his comments. Gillan McLaughlin spoke about the Triple M thing and the AFL issued a written press release and everybody reported it. For me, it was embarrassing and unpleasant for my family to hear that stuff replayed over and over again. But of course, I was always going to cope with it. I still love football just as much. Life goes on. I still work next door to the Triple M guys every Saturday. My husband still looks up the amateur footy results every Sunday, as he has for 30 years, and still supports his beloved Bombers, despite everything. But I have to say, I, I have to say that I felt if I didn't say anything, I would be letting down a lot of people who have been bullied over the years across all walks of life. And I really think we all should think more about what we say before we speak. Smart people who I respect, like Neil Mitchell and David's old teammate and playing charge and later coaching opponent Lee Matthews, hold the view still that I give as good as I get. Lee's view was that I should have copped it, that I should never complain. Another champ, one champion footballer had his own on-field analogy, that he never complained when he was whacked on the footy field 
And because he, and so therefore when he whacked people and got whacked again, he shouldn't complain either. Well, guess what? I do think that Eddie Maguire should start thinking about a succession plan at Collingwood and that for all his brilliant, brilliant work, his judgment there has been badly flawed on occasion. And certainly during the first half of his presidency, James Brayshaw remained a divisive figure at North Melbourne and did not fully embrace key aspects of the job. And Danny, for all his performance at the AFL Coaches Association, had to be examined and ultimately came under serious question. But I don't ever recall saying that the Collingwood members should physically attack Eddie or the Kangaroos constituency attack James or that Danny should have been held underwater by 18 AFL coaches or even just Alistair Clarkson, not even as a joke. One senior football person put to me a few weeks ago that there are some men still working in the game who are very happy to have women in senior roles, but only to a certain limit, and only in certain roles, and certainly not to hold too many strong opinions, and only a certain type of woman. He likened the scenario to the supporters who love and who doesn't, Cyril Rioli and Eddie Betts, and therefore insists that they're not racist, even though they boo Adam Goods. One more point about the sport of men. It's probably far-fetched and even sexist to invoke the Brexit scenario whereby a woman has to come in and clean up the mess made by a group of men. <laughs> but the examples in footy are tantalising. The AFL welcomed its first woman club president only after the Richmond board was hopelessly divided. St Kilda was still in a financial and cultural mess when a new regime took over and immediately installed three women onto its executives. I've already spoken about the AFL women commissioners and their role in the Essendon penalties. When an AFL executive appointment went pear-shaped last year, another woman, who should have been there anyway, was quickly promoted to that executive. When the footy show was struggling badly earlier this year, in the face of a divisive personal scandal, the program finally read the play and introduced a woman co-host. Guess what? It worked. The ratings have been good. And have I been hearing a woman boundary rider on Triple M over the past two weeks? I think they're bidding for the radio rights again. And when a bruised Eddie Maguire took himself off Fox Footy's Thursday night football coverage after the Queen's birthday, who did the Boise Network turn to to replace him? Sarah Jones finally got her big break and rated accordingly. Women do see things differently. We think about the game differently, we write about it differently, and I think we've changed it, we've diversified it, and we've improved the way it's been covered. And maybe we even love it differently, but we do love it, and I love it. I fell in love with football as a young child in the 1960s. Um, I wasn't as committed as my sister Amelia, I didn't join the Richmond Tier squad, and I apologise in concluding to everyone who's heard this story, because I've told it a lot. But I always thought there was something magic about football and definitely about the Tigers. Every Sunday night, our family would sit, my brother, sister and I, at 6.30 in front of Disneyland on Channel 7. Remember Disneyland on Sunday nights? And remember how you could go to Adventureland and Fantasyland and Frontierland? And Mum and Dad would often come in and tell us week in, week out, that we were luckier than all those American kids because we could go to Tigerland. <laughs> Thank you.
New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday and we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fedsquare.com. Take care and we'll see you next Wednesday.